0: Our Father, we're thankful tonight for our salvation that was secured on the basis of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, independently of human merit, and therefore is secure. We're thankful that you control history, that you work all things out according to the purpose of your counsel. And we ask that you would illuminate our hearts tonight to the lessons that we can learn from how the Holy Spirit developed the early church, for we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we covered the first two events in the church age, which was the ascension and session of Christ. We've talked about Pentecost and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And tonight we begin a new um, event, a new time, where we're working with how the church, during the book of Acts, became a separate entity from Israel. And it's wise to trace this through a series of things. It's not just one event that happened, it's a, it's a series of events. And so that's why in the notes you'll see that there's a, set, a series of steps. Page 59, step one, spiritual separation. Uh, also on page 59, step two, recognition of God's worldwide plan. And then uh, you come over to page 62, uh, the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church and then you come over to uh, page 64 and step four, the official recognition of Gentiles in the church. And this goes on for, uh, for a step or two more. The idea here is to show that things did not happen instantly as far as the church's existence. And there's a lesson in this, and it's one that uh, we're not always conscious of when we talk about spiritual gifts when you hear uh, Christians, and we all do this from time to time, uh, nostalgically uh, remember the early church. And a lot of it is fanciful, because um, if we don't think about this carefully, we think that the early church was some sort of idyllic time, and that we have to get back to that time. Well, as a matter of fact, the time of the early church is not something to get back to. That's going backwards in history. History goes forward, not backwards. And the early church, being part of the body, there's a growth process, which we'll see in the next chapters, that the church matures through history. And in the book of Acts, we have Israel gradually decreasing and the church gradually increasing. Even though the church and all the work positionally occurred on the day of Pentecost, it took decades to work out in practice. And tonight we're going to look at uh, a section in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6 and 7, because I want to move on to Stephen and what happened in Acts 7. So if you look on uh, uh, page 59 of the notes... You'll see, basically, we won't spend much time on step one, because I think we've we've belabored the point about Pentecost. Um, The idea there is that the church positionally was separated right at that point. So here we have Acts chapter 2. And what we're going to look at now is a follow-through, and we're going to go out further in time and look here now at Acts 6 and 7 because at that point a major thing happens and uh, while positionally nothing changed at Acts 6 and 7 everybody was regenerated just as they were in Acts chapter 2 everybody was saved by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ the gospel really hadn't changed uh, but there was was a significant growth and why I'm, I'm stressing this and belaboring it is this we have talked about the work of the Holy Spirit over here in Acts chapter 2. We've said, we've used the acrostic ribs plus the intercession of the Holy Spirit plus spiritual gifts. That, that that all occurred right here. First time in history that ever happened. Simultaneously, instantly, and supernaturally. But the problem is that in spiritual gifts, These gifts are given to the entire historical body, not just to a contemporary segment of the body that exists. Now, the fallacy in in thinking through these spiritual gifts is that you have to have all the gifts in every generation. That's fallacious. You don't have to have all the gifts in every generation. If some of those gifts were essential to get the church started and grounded. Once the foundation is laid, you no longer have to have it. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, it refers to the foundation of the church as the prophets and the apostles as a past event. Hebrews chapter 2 refers to the wonders and signs of the apostolic era as a past event. Now, is this denigrating supernaturalism? Some people would say, Oh, well, now you're saying that the Holy Spirit isn't as powerful today as he was then. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that the church is a unified body. It's not separated into generations. So if a gift was given to the church back here, it was given to the church for all time. In other words, the body can't be divided into generational segments. An apostolic gift given in the first generation of the church, is given to the whole church. And similarly, down through history, gifts have been given that propagate in their effect historically through time. And we're going to see one of those effects tonight, because if you'll turn now to Acts chapter 6, we're going to spend quite a bit of time in the text and uh, while, again, Thursday night class is not a class in exegesis or expository uh, presentation, uh, tonight we'll be, get into that a little bit more than we usually do. Um, in Acts 6 and 7, by the way, the church here, uh, for, from Acts 2 to Acts 6 and 7, is where? Primarily, Jerusalem. Remember Jesus said... You will be witnesses to me and to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Has the church witnessed in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world up to this point? The answer is no. church is still confined to Jerusalem. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ said, This church will gradually expand. I will build it so the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and it will go out and you will make disciples of all nations. Now, that is a prophecy of what will surely occur. It's not just an admonition to do it, but it's also a prophecy that it will be done. Now, if it will be done, and God works all things after the counsel of his will, then he is going to work history out so that happens. whether people want it to happen or not. Whether Christians want it to happen or not it will happen. And the book of Acts has a series of events that shows you how the Holy Spirit works in spite of Christians. Because the Holy Spirit has a bigger job here than what we think is going on. We haven't clue half the time of what really is going on. That's why, when remember when we dealt with this, intercession work of the Holy Spirit. We said he makes intercession for us with unspeakable speech, speech that we can't hear, not because we couldn't hear it if, we, if it were audible, but speech that we're not permitted to hear. That there's secure communication going on between the Holy Spirit, who is indwelling regenerate natures of believers in history, and he's, he's got a secure calm link with the Lord Jesus Christ sitting at the Father's right hand. And part of that secure calm is because it prevents other ears from listening. Now what do I mean by the other ears that might be listening in? The God of this world. The God of this world is surprised by things that the Holy Spirit does through the church he's surprised by things that can happen in your life Satan is not omnipresent Satan is not omniscient he can be surprised and part of the surprise is is that the Holy Spirit indwells us he partitions us for you on this day about that thing in your life very specific and he partitions the Father, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who goes to the Father, Trinity, same order. And that is unspeakable. That is not shared with you, with me, with anybody else. That's a private, secure communication between the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ for our sanctification. And it's done so that God retains the initiative in history. Now, in Acts chapter 6, we're going to watch for a case study. So you can think about this situation tonight. Step 2, the recognition of God's worldwide plan. It was not recognized up through Acts chapter 5. How do we know it wasn't? Well, if you look at the quote at the top of page 59 from Dr. Ladd's Theology of the New Testament, here's what he says. Acts outlines the steps by which the church gradually broke with the synagogue and became an independent movement. In fact, one of the central motifs in Acts is the explanation of how a small fellowship of Jews in Jerusalem, to all intents and purposes, hardly distinguishable from their Jew- Jewish milieu, became a Gentile fellowship in the capital city of the empire, completely freed from all Jewish practices. That was an amazing historical transition. It occurred within 30 or 40 years. It only took three or four decades for the church to separate out from Israel. Now, what caused that separation? It didn't happen overnight. In Acts, if you'll hold the place here in Acts 6, and go back to Acts 2 for a moment, some observations from the text. Notice, in Acts 2, what the Christians were doing. Often, these are... uh, cited as as evidences of what we have to get back to, and so on. And there's some good things here. I'm not negating the good things. But, um, if you notice, in Acts 2, 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayers. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. All those who believe were together, had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions with sharing with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continued with one mind, in where? In the temple. Now, obviously, why did they go to the temple? Because that was what Jews did. That was the cultus. Remember, we said where the temple is. That was the place where Jews worshipped God. So they had not separated from the synagogue. They had not separated from the Jewish community at this point. They were indistinguishable if you were a sociologist studying the situation at this point in time. Now, the irony is, of course, they didn't realize it, but they had become temples of the Holy Spirit in their bodies. In fact, the local church is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We know that from 1 Corinthians 3. Well, they had become temples of the Holy Spirit, but here they were going to the brick and stone temples still. Now, again, they didn't realize the difference. So, in Acts chapter 6, something happened. And there's a number of interesting historical notices. If you'll look in verses 1 and 2 of Acts chapter 6. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but select from out from you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Statement found approval of the whole congregation, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parnamus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and they laid their hands on them. Now, this passage is usually referenced in average sermons uh, when we start talking about the office of the deacon. And that's correct. This is where the office of the deacon came up. But that's not the way we're going to work on it tonight. Tonight, that's nice to know that the office of the deacon arose. But something else was happening here in the larger and the grander scheme. In the first place, in verse 1, it says the disciples were increasing, a complaint arose. Now, who was the complaint, and who were the protagonists in this complaint? There were two groups of Jews. Notice, no Gentiles here. Both of these parties are Jews. One are the Hellenic Jews. The others are the native, or what we would call the Palestinians. And by the way, just to inject a historical note about the word Palestinians, throughout all of history, the noun Palestinian referred to Jews, not Arabs. That is a modern use of the word Palestinian. Hellenic versus the natives. Both are Jews. Let's look at this group here, the Hellenic group. Who are the Hellenic Jews? Well, what's Hellenic mean? Greek. Greek Jews. Jews who had come from outside Palestine. These are Jews who are part of a larger community, which we will call, and has been called, The Diaspora. That is, the dispersed Jews. Who are the dispersed Jews? The Diaspora are the Jews living outside the land. When did the Jews start living outside of the land? Let's go back in the Old Testament. Back in the Old Testament, we've gone through the framework, we've gone through the various events through history, and you'll recall... That we have the king's discipline. That is, God the king ruled his nation and began historically to discipline the nation. When the nation rebelled against him, he would rebel against the nation. And what happened here was you remember that the kingdom declined from the golden era of Solomon. Kingdom was divided had a civil war, the kingdoms were in decline, and then we have this event right here, the exile. What happened to Jews in the exile? They were exiled and moved physically to Gentile lands, in particular Assyria and Babylon. When the restoration occurred after 70 years of the exile, When they got down to the Restoration, that was a partial Restoration. All the Jews were not not restored. Jews remained in the Gentile lands. And their descendants now, centuries later, are all over the Mediterranean. Now, this is interesting, because it shows you something about how the Holy Spirit works. Let's look at a timeline here. The Holy Spirit, this is the time of of 586 B.C. Here you have the exile. The Jews go into exile. Some of them come back in 516. Some come back. The rest of them remain outside the land. And they gradually spread all over the place. They start businesses, they start trading, they start moving all over the place. But now look what's been created here. Something new in history has been created that wasn't there before. What has God done here? Okay, here's the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, centuries later, the Gospel occurs. The gospel is announced in Palestine, not in the diaspora. It's in Palestine that the gospel is announced. So, new revelation begins to happen in the land, not outside of the land. In fact, remember when we were dealing with the life of Christ, what did Jesus say about where the disciple should go in his day? Go not where? Stay to the house of Israel. Go not to the Gentiles. So, the Lord Jesus must have been a dispensationalist right there. Obviously, he didn't want the disciples to go outside of the land. He wanted to stay in the land. Why? Because the gospel was addressed to the Jews in Palestine, to the national entity of Israel. Now, meanwhile, these people are spreading all over the world And as they spread and as they establish their businesses, what do you suppose these Jews in the diaspora are doing? What what they had to have done in order, for example, if they moved into uh, the Aegean area and established trading, what would they have to do with their language? Have to learn Greek? Have to learn Persian? Have to learn Aramaic? Have to learn Latin? have to learn Phoenician, have to learn Ugaritic. So all of a sudden, we have, not all of a sudden, but after centuries, now we have diaspora Jews living in other countries by the thousands who have a unity among themselves. Here's a Jew in Greece. Here's a Jew in Syria. How are these two people linked? They're linked by virtue of their genealogy, but they're linked because of their Jewish practices. They kept the Torah. They kept the memory of the Temple. These people are linked in a way. This guy living over here, say, in, uh, in, uh, in Greece and another one in Syria, these guys are closer together than a native Greek or a native Syrian, right? They're culturally connected but they're diversified geographically and linguistically. But they share the Torah. They share the Word of God. Now, what does that suggest that God is doing historically to set things up here? He's got a cadre of witnesses. He's got an enclave, a vehicle, for taking the gospel out into that world. Also, prior to the Lord Jesus Christ, God did something else to prepare the world for the gospel. Had a group of people invade Palestine called the Romans. And everywhere the Romans went, the Roman army engineers followed them. And the Roman army engineers were one, as the Georgia text says, one hell of an engineer. These guys made aqueducts, roadways, that are still used today. Isn't that amazing? How much of our stuff is going to be used 10, 15 centuries from now, huh? These guys built roads that are the basis of roads today. In fact, in 1948, the Egyptian armor columns were driving toward the heartland of Israel to destroy it. And they came up along, and you can, if you visualize a map, Uh, of uh, of the land here in the east. Here's the eastern end of the Mediterranean, here's Israel, here's Egypt, here's the Nile, and this is all sand over in here, in the Sinai. You can't take armored vehicles through sand. So, historically, every invasion between Israel and Egypt for centuries upon centuries, whether it's chariots in the ancient world, whether it's armored personnel carriers or tanks today, They all follow the same route right here. So, in 1948, the Egyptian armor column was moving north in a pincer move to destroy the Jewish colony and just wipe it from the face of the earth. The Jewish army had, I believe he was full colonel at the time, might have been a general in the Israeli reserves, who was a very excellent archaeologist who had done a lot of exploring down in the Negev, down in the sandy area. And he found a Roman road right across here. Nobody knew it existed except him and his students, because it was under sand, buried under dunes of sand. But that road, stone emplacements that those Roman army engineers had put there, were so strong that they could sustain a tank moving across it so the Israelis at night gathered an armored column the Egyptians hadn't hadn't got a clue they were so confident that they would never be struck on their right flank they never put any guards out did no recon Nobody. no armored column is going to come across sand and so in the morning a big surprise all of a sudden Jewish tanks show up where did they come from came across an ancient Roman road built by the Roman army engineers. So, the Roman roads were all over the Mediterranean. Guess who traveled on those roads and brought the gospel throughout southern Europe within a matter of two or three decades? The Christians. So, independently of spiritual and religious things, there were sociological things, there were political things, there were military things. All of history was being worked according to the counsel of his will. All the foundations were laid. By the way, did the church have a fundraising campaign to supply the roads? No. The roads were supplied by the Gentiles. And by the way, did the church have a language schools to train? No normal Jewish businesses for 400 years created those linguistic contacts. Do you see what I'm getting at here? When God went to pull off the Gospel, it wasn't just the Holy Spirit working in the church, it was God working all around the world, setting it up for the propagation of the Gospel. Now, the Diaspora one of their cultural links, besides speaking Hebrew, being able to read the Torah, was that they would come back to where? Periodically. they come back to Jerusalem. Why did they come back to Jerusalem? Because there was the temple. And they would come back for the holidays. Passover. And who was there at Pentecost? From many lands, the Diaspora Jews. So, all these people come back periodically. Well, one of the reasons that they would come back was they loved to be buried in Jerusalem. And history tells us that they would come back and the men in those days were dying earlier than their wives, just like they do today. And wives are tougher. And the men would die off and leave their widows around Jerusalem. So all of a sudden now we have a large community of widowed women. People. They're there because their husbands came back to die in the city. So, the collection now in verse 1 of chapter 6 of these widows, the diaspora widows who have come back. The problem is that they come back out of different lands. They come back from Syria, they come back from Galatia, they come back from Greece, and they're not quite the same as the Jews who live in Jerusalem. By native, raised there, they aren't the same as the Galileans. They are kind of different. So now we have a culture difference inside the church. And that's what the thing that is in verse 1. The deacons don't start until verse 6, 7, or 8. And we'll get to the deacons. We're just looking now at the cultural divisions and schisms right from the start in the church. So there's a, they don't care for one another. And it also is interesting, it says, in the daily serving of food, clearly the early church had a daily poverty program or a hunger program for those widows. They believed in ca- taking care of them. And what's so interesting is that the Jews outside of the church had a charity program too. Jewish records tell us of two kinds of poverty programs that they ran. One was, every Friday, private charity boxes would be out and distributed. The Jewish population uh, would be given, the poor, would be given enough money for 14 meals. Two meals a day for the next seven days. That was a poverty program that Jews ran. By the way, they were the only people in the world that ran poverty programs because that's the effect of the Word of God, to have compassion. And the strangers were also, poor who were poor, were given daily food. However, in verse 1, the implication is that the serving going on there, that particular welfare program is being run internal to the Christian community. Because obviously, the the complaint is inside the church. So what does that tell you that's happening culturally right here in verse 1? Without going into verse 2, right away, what do we know? that the church is beginning to separate out. It's beginning to take care of its own. It's beginning not to rely on the poverty programs of the large culture around them. It has already, probably within weeks and months, created its own welfare program. And this has been the mark of the church wherever it's gone. In America, see, we Christians in America, we kind of don't see this because the Christian idea of welfare has spread outward to the secular state. And so we've grown up in that environment, so we always associate welfare programs with the government. But if you want to think about it, next time somebody tells you about the open-minded oriental religions, ask yourself, in the nation of India, who introduced orphanages and hospitals? Everywhere the church has gone, medicine and poverty programs have gone with it. And here's an obvious case that by the time of chapter 6, verse 1, we have this rise of this ministration of daily food. But it's not going too well. The poverty program isn't going too well because it's a natural cultural problem. People just don't like to, to mix from different cultures. And that's what's happening. So it's interesting that when they go to solve the problem, notice the priority in verses 2 and 3. It's clear in verse by verses 2 and 3 and 4 that the apostolic priority is not on the welfare program. It's on the driver behind the welfare program, which is what? The ministry of the word God of God. And so the apostles, in spite of the fact that they have a political and sociological problem inside the church, do not permit that program to interfere with the ministry of the Word of God. Another lesson about priorities in the church. The priority is the ministry of the Word of God and all the programs come later. And as a result, it doesn't say the programs are bad. It says the good will not become the enemy of the best. So right from the beginning, there's an an advocacy for the primacy of the ministry of the Word of God over all else, including poverty and taking care of people. And it's not, again, that they're, they're indifferent, but it's Now, the next observation to make is down in verse 5. If you look at verse 5 very carefully, names are given. And what's interesting about those names is they're all Greek. So the deacons that are being appointed here seem to be diaspora deacons deacons from the Greek-speaking world. By the way, just because they spoke Greek doesn't mean that they all came out of Greece. Why do you suppose... Well, do you know what the lingua franca was? And the, the, the business language at the time was, was Greece. So the fact that they speak Greek doesn't necessarily mean they literally came from Greece. They could have been from, from uh, Galatia. They could have been a lot of different places because a lot of different places spoke Greek. I mean, where in the world today can't you see a Coca-Cola sign? I mean, everybody knows certain basics. McDonald's, Coca-Cola, doesn't matter if you're in the Afghanistan, Japan, China, or Russia. Everybody knows Coca-Cola and you know, McDonald's. Well, English has become the lingua franca of our, gener- our world, but Greek was the lingua franca of that time. So, these men had Greek names, not necessarily implying they were all Greeks, but definitely showing they weren't native Galileans. So now we have a community, a synagogue, that is or a group of Jews who have this generally more cosmopolitan uh, type of background. Now we come down further and we look more and we see Stephen, apparently was one of the great ones of this girly group of deacons, performs many of the wonders and signs which apostles were doing and so although he wasn't an apostle he was the um, he was a man on whom the Holy Spirit was working mightily in in a way like an apostle now it says in verse nine that he had a little problem when he was ministering the word of God and when he was apparently he was involved in the poverty program but he was also teaching And Stephen was performing great signs and wonders, presumably along with a poverty program, but also he was ministering. In verse 9 it says, some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. Now, look again in verse 9 and ask yourself, do you suppose that's a native Jewish synagogue? Or is it a diaspora Jewish synagogue? Clearly, it's a diaspora Jewish synagogue, isn't it? These are Jews from outside the land. What is the Holy Spirit doing here? What is he telling us in Acts chapter 6? That another set of Jews, besides Peter, Paul, John, and the native guys, the Holy Spirit's now beginning a work in another group within the overall Jewish community. He's stirring people up. And they were so upset by what Stephen was doing, the arguments began, they began to become disputing. And it says they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So even though he was a deacon, even though he was in the poverty program, he was involved in lively public debates. And nobody was able to answer him. You remember that little observation. Because later on in the martyrdom of Stephen... There's another guy watching him. The guy that writes the rest of the New Testament. Yet here, no one was able to take Stephen on. Stephen was doing something that Peter wasn't doing. Stephen was doing something that John wasn't doing. James wasn't doing. Mark wasn't doing. Matthew wasn't doing. This guy was really stirring people up in the diaspora community. The diaspora community wouldn't know Peter from a hole in the ground. Probably wouldn't respect respected him either. He's just, a, he's just a local boy. Don't bother with those guys. They don't know anything. They haven't been out in the world. But one, one of their own, who had been in the world, who had been traveled, well-traveled, who knew multiple languages, when one of those guys becomes not just a Christian, but he becomes an articulate Christian who knows the Word of God, all of a sudden, ooh, now we're going to have some arguments. Now we get stung. Now we feel the the incendiary nature of the gospel, the upsetting power of an interventional God. Now we see all this. So in verse 11, they can't answer the man So now they're going to set up some traps. Doesn't this look familiar? When's the last time in the Bible we read about setting up traps? For the Lord Jesus Christ. They secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. They came upon him and dragged him and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses. This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. Now watch verse 13. The charge is twofold. The charge is that he speaks against the Torah and he speaks against the temple. Now, we we don't know, because we don't have tape recordings, of what Stephen was doing to irritate these people. But I think if you use your sanctified imagination you can guess why they might have made these charges. Why do you suppose they interpreted the gospel to be against the Torah? Let's think about that one. Why would that be a charge against the early Christian preachers? These guys, they're attacking Moses' Torah. They're attacking the Pentateuch. What must they have been saying that the enemies of the gospel... Would turn around and make that charge. What were they saying salvation was by? By grace, through Christ. That you don't come to God through keeping the Torah. So the fact that they're angry and they're interpreting the gospel as anti law or antinomian. The charge here is immediately that the gospel of grace is antinomian. still hear that charge. And this goes back to the first century. That's exactly what the charge was in the first century. Next, it says that he speaks against this holy place. Now what do you suppose was true about the gospel that would lead observers to conclude, that the gospel is anti-Temple. What aspects of the gospel? So, to Torah, they say it's an attack on the Torah because the gospel is antinomian. It says you can't, you don't have to keep the law to be saved. It's anti-Temple because remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well: "The day is coming." when you can worship Him anywhere, that God is with you, and you are become a temple. So there must have been a realization on Stephen's part that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the Shekinah Glory, by the way, left the temple in 586. That's the book of Ezekiel. tells about all that. Big big episode where Ezekiel sits outside of Jerusalem, he sees the glory of the Lord leaving the temple never comes back again. The only other Shekinah glory you ever see is the star Bethlehem, which probably was not a star, it probably was the Shekinah glory. Stars don't just move and then stop. So, the indwelling Holy Spirit is a replacement. Now, the indwelling Holy Spirit's the center of attention, not the physical temple. So, whatever it was that Stephen was saying... He really raised a Ruckus. And these are very, very serious charges against the church. And this is where you begin to see the seam and the schism begins to split between the Christians who follow the gospel and the Jewish community that insists on the traditional, their traditional understanding of Moses. Okay. Now in verse 15 is a description. The interesting is wouldn't you, you imagine where where Luke wrote this text, okay? Luke is the author. Luke got most of his stuff because he was a traveling companion with who? Paul. Paul was present. He got involved in this incident. And it's kind of intriguing to ask yourself whether the description of verse 15 was given because Paul saw it. And he later remembered this. And after fixing their gaze on him, all who were seated in the council, that is the officials conducting this trial, saw his face like the face of an angel. Now what do you suppose that looked like? We're not really told. The text just says there was something peculiar. These guys would haul criminals before them all the time. I mean, this isn't the only messianic movement that existed. So there were religious nuts, There were criminals, there was uh, corruption, there were all kinds of people hauled before this council. And these astute observers see there's something different about this guy Stephen. Now Stephen begins his answer. In chapter 7, we're going to study it, we're not going to finish it obviously tonight, but we want to go through chapter 7 pretty, pretty carefully. Chapter 7 is the first major apologetic as the church begins to leave Jerusalem. Peter's apologetic, chapter 2, was given to people inside the city of Jerusalem, but now we begin to have a little rupture here. Now we begin to have the tempers begin to flare. And beginning in chapter 7, the whole chapter 7, is one narration of Stephen's answer to the charge that Christians are anti-Nomian and Christians are anti-Temple and anti-institutional. Christians are revolutionaries. Now here's Stephen's answer. Now tonight we're just gonna we're gonna start with a with a preliminary overview of his answer. And if you look on page 61 of your notes, I've given you an outline. We're gonna go through it verse by verse. This is a tremendous passage of scripture. Because it gives you a glimpse of what these wonderful first generation Christians were like and how far they had come in their understanding of the Word of God. Verses 2 through 16, I've divided on the outline, if you see on page 61, as discussing the origin of Israel. Verses 17 to 43, the origin of the Torah. Verses 44 to 50, the origin of the temple. You see, the text follows the accusation. Answers are made to questions. And the accusation an accusational question is in verse 613 of chapter 6. It's that is the charge that the Christian had to answer. So now we have an apologetic and here's an example of what an apologetic looks like. An apologetic is an answer primarily in a court environment. It's an answer to an accusation. It is a defense to a legal charge. Stephen recounts history. Believe it or not, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, however long it was, when I was working with university students, this is the passage that started me thinking about the framework. Because I started studying chapter 7, and I began to realize that Stephen's apologetic for the Christian faith was centered upon one historical event after another. And I began to realize that in Acts 2, Peter's defense was one historical event after another. And I began to realize in Acts 17 that Paul's apologetic was one historical event after another. That's what this framework series has been doing for seven years. The events that I have chosen were not arbitrarily chosen. I made a list up thirty years ago of every major speech in the Bible on a piece of graph paper, and I logged the different events that were repeatedly used in these Apologetics Answers. And the events that you have been learning are the events that are used in these Apologetics. And you'll watch now Stephen as he begins to use many of the events that you've studied. They become tools. Why are they tools? Because there are moments in space and time when God spoke and when God acted in a very important way. Not that he doesn't act and speak other times, but there are certain highlights of his program. And Stephen is going to give those highlights. So we're going to start by looking at verse 1. The high priest says, are these things true? Here's the officer in charge. This is the authority. This is an official proceeding now. This is not just a street gathering. This is an official gathering. This is, uh, we'll call it, an official inquiry. Don't know whether we can call it a trial exactly, but it's an official inquiry being conducted by the highest religious authority at the time, the high priest, no one outranks the high priest. And he is the one that demands an apologetic. Stephen will answer him. And you remember before Stephen opens his mouth, the chapter, verse, uh, chapter 6, remember when we said um, in verse 10 of chapter 6, the background? It says, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit of Stephen. Now we're going to watch the wisdom and the spirit of Stephen. When he gets through, not only do they have no answers for him, they are so angry that they don't have answers that they resort to physical violence. And that's always another thing to notice. Whenever Satan motivates physical violence against the church, he's already been defeated because he's so unable to meet the claims of the gospel by rational argument that he has to use physical violence to stop it. Physical violence is an admission of spiritual poverty. When physical violence has to be used to stop the gospel, it is already admitted that nothing else works to stop the gospel. Satan's pulled out all the stops, he can't falsify it. He can't undermine its claims. So now he has to physically extinguish it. It's always the case. And this is the, this is the beginning of church history, and it's been repeated thousands of times. It's still being repeated today. In China, in the Muslim lands, wherever Christians are persecuted, mostly in Muslim lands, wherever Christians are persecuted, it's always the case that the persecutors have failed in their ability, or they are unsure of themselves. They're insecure people that resort to physical violence. So the high priest demands an answer. Now he says, and beginning in verse 2, we're going to look at this section, beginning in verse 2, we're not going to obviously get done, we only have a few minutes here, but we're going to start. The first section, verses 2 through 16, and Stephen is going to remind his Jewish accusers... Of their own origins. And he says, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now, it's interesting he uses the God of glory. And you know, the God of glory was associated with a temple. And he says, You know, you people are always fussing about the God of glory in the temple. And he says, Where did the God of glory first talk to a Jew? Wasn't in Jerusalem. Wasn't even in this land. So I remind you that the God of glory started his program that you're in from outside this land. So clearly, Stephen, right from the start, shows that there is a worldwide horizon to God's working, even in the origin of the Jewish nation. Many years ago, I subscribed to the Jerusalem Post. This was from 1976. There was a letter to the editor. And it's interesting. Here's what a Jew observed. It was a discussion about Christianity, uh, Islam, and uh, Judaism. Here's, Here's an astute thing. It reminds me of Stephen. Dear sir, to the editor of the Jerusalem Post, the phrase Palestine as the cradle of the three monotheistic religions is being repeated ad nauseum by Christians and also by de-Judaized Jews. It should be critically analyzed from a Jewish point of view. This country is certainly not the cradle of Judaism. Isn't that a funny statement to make? Here's a guy writing in the Jerusalem Post and he's a Jewish guy. Yeshayahu Libowitz. Any discussion about his lineage? This country is certainly not the cradle of Judaism. Abraham recognized God in Iraq. The Torah was given in the no-man's land of Sinai. The foot of the lawgiver of Israel never touched the soil of Canaan. Eretz Israel, land of Israel, was acquired by Israel. It did not beget Israel. Jerusalem became the holy city of Judaism an a late state in the history of Israel and Judaism, 800 years, in fact, after Abraham. Islam is the supreme achievement of Arabia. Islam had no roots in Palestine. It conquered Palestine. The prophet of Islam visited Jerusalem only in a vision. Muhammad never visited the land. Only Christianity originated in this country. The God of the Christians was born here, he lived here, and he died here. The Christian church was first established in Jerusalem. To sum up, the two monotheistic religions, Judaism and Islam, do not have their cradle in Palestine. This country is only the cradle of Christianity. Now, there's somebody that knows their history. And you can well imagine, as Stephen opened his speech with verse 2, how that must have struck at the very foundation of this religious arrogance of the authorities. I remind you, says he, that this God that you speak endlessly of appeared to Abraham over there. Now, by merely saying that, here's this diaspora Jew who has a consciousness of over there, because he, like all the other diaspora Jews, have come from over there, have come from outside these nations. They're aware of the outside world. And he's saying the God of Israel spoke in the outside world. Come on, guys, get your horizon stretched out. Every once in a while, you know, you'll meet people that live in your neighborhood. you know, It's a long trip for them to go down to Washington, D.C. And some of them never cross the state line in their lives. Well, that's the story of the Palestinian Jews. And along comes this diaspora guy who's been traveling, well-traveled, bilingual at least, maybe trilingual. And he says, I remind you. So let's just get it straight from the start. The God of whom you're telling the people around here that I'm violating, that God spoke outside the land to our father Abraham of all people. Not just to any Jew, but to the original Jew. And then he departed from the land of Chaldeans in verse 4 and settled in Haran. This is all Genesis, this is all history, and he's reminding them they all knew this. It just, it, Stephen's now taking what they knew the chunks of history that they had known since they were boys young boys and he's turning it around and it's a little rapier now he's going to hit him with it from there after his father died God removed him to this country in which you are now living so it's Land, but it's not theirs. He gave them no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. Yet when he had no child, he promised that he would give him a possession and offspring after him. God spoke and he gives the promises. Foreign land, it's all Genesis 15, it's all the Abrahamic covenant. And in fact, verse 8 speaks of the Abrahamic covenant. So now isn't this interesting? Stephen begins his apologetic... To, Israeli, to Hebrew accusers by going back to their own origin and purpose. So here, watch what he's doing. He's using strategic envelopment. Here's his Hebrew accusers. But because they're Hebrews, they're part of the Israelite nation. And what this guy is going to do, he's going to say, okay, I am going to surround your argument with mine. Here's my strategic envelopment. And the envelopment that I'm going to use on you is the terms of the Abrahamic Covenant. And I'm going to say that the Abrahamic Covenant defines you. And you guys can accuse me all you want, but I'm telling you, and you know it, because you've studied the Scriptures, I'm telling you that your very existence is defined by the purposes of God in the Abrahamic Covenant and what are the three things in the Abrahamic Covenant that we study. Land, seed, and a worldwide blessing. See, Stephen's gotten things together here. He knows where things are going to lead. Now, it's interesting in verses 6 and 7 the aspects of the covenant that he's talking about is the land and the seed. doesn't mention the worldwide blessing. But if you follow his argument, and we will continue this next week, you follow his argument, you're going to see that by not stating that third thing in the Abraham covenant, he doesn't have to. Because when he gets through this argument, they're going to realize, in effect, here's his argument. We... Jews exist in history in order for a larger program toward the whole world. And where this exciting breakthrough in Stephen's understanding occurs, he's going to, after he gets done, after this speech is directed at his accusers, the Christians are listening to this. And what do you suppose they're thinking about? One guy in particular is listening very intently to this. And who's the guy that finally broke the gospel out of Palestine and went out and the outside? well, the guy who's listening to Stephen. You see, the importance of Acts 6 is that here is where Paul started in his theology. The New Testament is largely Pauline. But Paul started his understanding under this guy's ministry. This is the man who triggered Paul. Father, we thank you for how you work in such an amazing way down through time. And Father, we thank you that men like Stephen, who spent many hours and hours and hours in the text of Scripture, until he had such command of the Word of God, that he could face every opponent that challenged him. And not only could he face every opponent that challenged him, He was also a leader for believers. He was an example for all of us. And most of all, Father, we thank you that in all the turmoil and the apparent chaos of the moment, you deliberately arranged his diasporic culture, his understanding of the Word of God, and the presence of Saul, all woven beautifully together under your sovereign plan, all under your control, even though from their point of view there didn't seem to be anybody in control. And yet we can look backwards in time, many, many centuries, and thank you for this mighty work that you did through Deacon Stephen. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, questions. Okay, yeah, uh, the question concerns uh, Jesus' uh, healing of the man in Luke. It's also in Mark, uh, where, maybe it's in Matthew 2, but I, I know it's in Mark, um, where Jesus says to this man who has a physical medical problem, your sins are forgiven you, and then he heals them also, in the context, however, of being challenged. Um When you get into a passage like that, the way to sometimes understand it is to understand the argument of the gospel. Luke, Matthew, and Mark have brought a coherent argument. Remember, let's back up. Why were the gospels written? Well, we know why the gospels were written. The Holy Spirit wrote the gospels in order to preserve the history of the Incarnation so you can see what God walking this planet looks like. And that's the purpose of the Gospels. Each of the four Gospels presents the Incarnation in their own way. So there's four different portraits of Jesus. And that's why, by the way, there's these apparent conflicts between the Gospels. So that the whole idea of trying to synchronize the Gospels vex people. And there are things we still don't understand about it. But it's because you're taking a camera angle from four angles on the same subject. So when you get into a passage like that, you have to ask yourself the larger question, why is this whole thing in the Gospel? Why is that event singled out among the dozens and hundreds of events possible? John says that if he had recorded every event, the world wouldn't be filled with the books. Probably an exaggeration, but but John's point is that, that there's a lot here missing. And these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. So the Gospels, in one sense, each one becomes an apologetic for the Christian faith. In the case of that man, uh, clearly the Sanhedrin, the opponents of the Gospel, um, don't believe the claims of Christ. And the claim Christ makes was a stunning one if you think about it, for a Jew. Now, he could have passed as a kind of a cavalier, religious, callous remark to a Gentile audience, but not to a Jewish audience. Why do I say that? Jews were monotheists. What is inherent in monotheism about forgiving? Who can forgive in monotheism? God. Now, therefore, what was Jesus doing when he said, I forgive you? You're the one I've offended. See, the only person that can forgive something is the one who's been offended. So when the Lord Jesus says, I forgive you your sin, what he's also saying is that it was your sin that offended me. And, I mean, that's a pretty potent statement when you, when you let it roll down a little bit and think about it and chew on it for a while. That is a pretty powerful statement, but the statement has a problem with it, an apologetic weakness, if you will, and that is that if you were in the Sanhedrin listening to Jesus make that claim that he can forgive sin, the problem is that you have no way of checking out the authority of that claim. There's no way you can go on a teleporter up to heaven and check the books to see if the sins have been erased. So, for you, while you can appreciate it's a stunning claim, the problem you would have is in verifying that claim. So, therefore, I believe the reason Jesus heals the guy, I mean, the guy might have had a sin problem, but that wasn't the issue there. The issue was, okay, you, you don't believe this? That's all right, I can, I can heal too. Let's try this one. And this is why... He says, counterpoint to that, in John chapter 3, if I tell you earthly things and you don't believe, how are you guys going to believe I tell you heavenly things? In other words, here I'm making these claims where you can check me. Did I raise, does this guy genuinely heal? Check him out. Now, there's a verifiable claim. The claim to forgive sins is not verifiable. So Jesus links the unverifiable claims, forgiving sins, with verifiable claims that he can miraculously heal. And it's an it's a, um, accommodation, in one sense, to the finiteness of man. But it's a powerful apologetic that uh, he says, no, no difference. I can forgive sin, I can heal people. One's a miracle and the other one is. One you can check, one you can't. But I'll do both just so you know you can see. Well, but... You, yes, did he, everybody has a sin problem. But you But you can't... See, see the reason... You, 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 you can't make inferences without checking it. Like, for example, in John 9, you got the ultimate answer. Remember, there's seven... Remember when I go through the seven categories of suffering? And deserved, and there's undeserved. There's five reasons why you can suffer that have nothing to do with your personal life. And... And, and you can sit there and, and contemplate your navel for the next five years and never come up with a, with a rational answer as to why did, why did I why get clobbered like this? Because it isn't related to just you. The world is interlocked. You may be clobbered in order to, to be a testimony to another believer who you don't even know is watching you. And so you don't know all these things, and our our data horizon, our data set is like this. And it's just a small, small part of the overall data set. And here we are trying to make these titanic inferences about what God's doing in our life when we only know this much. And this is why we look like fools half the time when we do it. So, in this case, sure the guy had a sin problem. And in fact... For all we know, he may have had some of the illnesses due to his own personal sin. It might have been deserved suffering. But in the argument of that approach, Jesus doesn't make that an issue. He uh, he is doing this, not so much even with the guy. He's involved with these people that are attacking his message. It doesn't even tell
1: the after effects of the man. No. It's like he's just sort of brushed aside
0: That's Yeah, although probably if you you had been there, there might have been some foul. But on the other hand, Jesus behaves in startling ways in the Gospel. And the only people that seem to recognize the startling ways are the unbelieving critics. Um, I have learned more about observing the text of the Bible by reading attacks against it. Because the liberals will will see things in the text that I just, you know, I'll be zipping along and never even see it. That's why I always like to read the hostile criticism of it. And um, one of the criticisms of the gospel accounts of Jesus is Jesus' supposedly unbalanced personality. There really has been a whole strain of criticism about that. That Jesus is not a normal person. He's arrogant. Uh, sometimes he's he's uh, almost callous to people's suffering. He name calls, calls people fools. Um, he, he calls the lady who's uh, humbly coming before him as to uh, why should I dump crumbs on the floor so the dogs can eat it. And uh, he, he says these things that make you do double takes because we have this image uh, that... A Christ-like personality is this bland, harmless, gooey, sentimental, romantic idea. And the Gospels don't permit that. They challenge this whole concept of a romantic Jesus. Sometimes he was almost cruel. Uh, Other times he um, drove men out of the temple. Uh, Not only did he drive men out of the temple, but he blocked public access. And he not only, of all the institutional buildings to do it, he picked the one that's the center of the whole civilization. So, you know, try that on for size. Um, So, when you look at that, here's the way I've kind of tried to digest it. Because you can't just, you can't make excuses. The gospel texts show him, uh, almost, for example, when the disciples, when his mother comes to him and asks him for things, uh, he says, What do I have got to do with you? And you think, Holy Mackle, is that the way he talked to his mother? Uh, but under the leading of the Holy Spirit, you know why I think that particular cabinet? It was a warning against Mariolatry. Because the heart of Roman Catholicism is that Mary has an end with her son. And it's, it's negated in that very text because she doesn't have an in with her son. She gets no special treatment from him. When she comes to ask him for a favor, he says, I don't have to answer that. I'm not going to do it. get lost. Now, I'm overplaying the point, but the idea there is that Mary does not have an in with Jesus. She is an, an, she, her relationship with Jesus is not a favorite. She doesn't have higher relationship to Jesus than any other believer. She, her sins have to be paid for by Jesus, just like anybody else's sin. She's not immaculate. So this was a warning put into the Gospels. So the way I've looked at it is, I've thought about these personality profiles. And the, there, there are whole psychological associations that generate these personality profiles that employers are supposed to give to the employees and find out whether you're imbalanced or not. And years ago, I don't know whether it's still true, but the Minnesota personality profile, whatever it was, was one that was used in a lot of businesses and schools to see whether employees uh, were stable. And one of the questions that if you answered yes to, you were considered to be abnormal was whether you prayed and expected answers to prayer. Uh, and that meant you were an abnormal person. Now, what they meant when they said abnormal was the statistical bell-shaped curve. See, what they did is they went around to, to um, what do you call it, calibrate this questionnaire by asking, say, you know, 400 people what their answers were. So after you get 400 answers to this set of questions, you do a a statistical study and find out what the, quote, normal is. But the normal is really just the midpoint. It's just the mean and the bell-shaped curve. So what have you done? Think about it. You haven't made a moral judgment here. What you've done is made a statistical calculation of the mean. Then you've gone along and said you've made the additional ethical judgment that the mean, by definition, is the ethical right. Well, Jesus doesn't fit in the middle of the bell-shaped curve. See, that's the problem. He he does these things that that jerk him out on the wings of the bell-shaped curve in many areas, and then that he becomes abnormal. Well, the our our quaint way of responding to the to this concept of psychological analysis is to turn it right around turn it around 180 degrees and reverse fire and the answer is that jesus is the normal one and all the rest of us are abnormal that's the problem so what you have when you do a, one of these statistical profiles and you get a bell-shaped curve is that's the average sinner that's what a fallen corrupt God-hating person looks like, on the average. Now, draw your conclusions from that one. But don't compare Jesus with that bell-shaped curve, because it's not going to fit. So, that, there's a lot of things that... that the Gospels, by the way, is a fascinating study of the greatest personality who ever lived. And you want to read it that way. And, and don't... because we've read it so much, we get so used to it, we don't get startled any longer by these stunning things that happen i mean just to visualize maybe to stimulate the juices in your imagination imagine that you were given the assignment in 60 days to come up with a script for a tv show that would feature the cleansing of the temple now what would you do what would you what would you direct the actors that would play the different parts to do. How would you program the people sitting at the tables, the money changers, that, by the way, were ripping everyone off because who came to the money changing tables in John chapter 2? They were diaspora Jews. Besides Palestinian Jews that lived outside of town. So they all come to town and what do they have to have to participate in Passover? A sheep. They have to buy something. What do you buy with? Oh, gee, i got coins from Syria. Sorry, we don't take Syrian coins here. You don't? No. Well, where do I get the right coins? We have a little exchange over here. Come on. And then it's the ripoff off artist. That's what these guys were doing. That's what the money changing, it was an institution of corruption. And the point that angered Jesus, he was angry when he went into that temple. To see the fact that here was the picture of salvation that was supposed to be an example of God's grace, and these jerks were turning it into a to uh, something that would be rated on how much money you had, which is exactly opposite to the whole concept of salvation. So he goes in there and he tears the place apart, makes a whip. I mean, he's got a, he's got a weapon. I wonder if he'd get through a scanner at the airport. The point is that that's the Jesus of the Gospels. And it's not the Jesus of popular imagination, even among Christians, popular imagination. Debbie? Uh-huh.
1: the times and the people that were there experiencing it. But to me, it seems like there's something missing between the attitude, this this tension between Jesus and the priests that are in the temple to now the early Christians in Acts 2 where they're daily in the temple worshiping God. I mean, there doesn't seem to be this, like the tension seems to be gone. And I guess is there anything historically? I mean, because it seems like even Matthew says even to this day, they're still saying the same thing, that the devil stole the body. So if these were believers of Jesus and they're worshiping in a temple daily, you know, the situations like Jesus, you know, cleansing the temple, you'd, you'd think you'd see some tension there. You know, like the high priest mm-hmm. is not one these Christian, these believers, mm-hmm. their daily and
0: growing in numbers. Okay, a good question uh, has raised the issue of why between Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost uh, and what we read today in Acts 2 that the early Christians were sitting there um, going to the temple daily and worshipping. I mean, how come you didn't get tension? I think the answer to that is given in Acts 4 um, because in Acts 4 the tension blows up. That's when Remember, uh, Peter and John heal somebody, and when the, when the prayers are being made about that, that next event where it, it blew up in their face, uh, there's a remark made um, where, uh, let, let's turn to Acts 4, and you'll see, you'll see some interesting things where this tension does arise, it's, it's simmering under the surface. Um, Chapter 4 it says they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees, came upon them. Um, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. I think, Debbie, the answer is that the average believers probably weren't doing any teaching as such individually, they were just going to the temple to worship the Lord. So, they weren't the one. If, if you were the security force, think in terms of, of a policeman. Now, from, the, from their point of view, the, they had a problem. Their problem wasn't that they were theologically, I mean, they thought. It wasn't that they were against Jesus per se. Their problem was to maintain order in the temple precinct. So anybody that became a disturbance was a threat to the security people. Now, the average believer walking in the temple worshiping wasn't a security threat because they weren't talking, they weren't instigating revolt, probably being quiet for themselves. Like, you would imagine going into the National Cathedral. Um, You know, we go in there, we sit down quietly in the pew, and and we, you know, pull out a Bible and we read it or something like that. It's not not like the security guard gets upset because we do that. But notice they get quickly upset. Look who comes in verse 1. That's the whole security force that's showing up, and they're getting, they're they're showing up because verse two, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So there's where they're colliding with that other story. They put a cover story out, and now the cover story is being blown by these guys that keep bringing up the issue of the resurrection. And I think we have to understand too that if we were on the scene, uh, you know, if uh, what's that? guy that was on all the half-colored uh, you know, semi-pornographic uh, television show and now he's in Afghanistan. Re- oh, yeah. Uh, imagine if he uh, were there reporting on the high priest's reasoning why Jesus must be crucified. I suspect the story Re- Revala would have gotten is that the high priests are looking out the window of the temple and who do they see who in the sea of nations have their representatives outside his security force? The Romans. They had the fortress of Antonia right across the street here. So here's the fortress of Antonia with Roman guards. You didn't play games with the Romans. Romans had enough of this place because they remembered their history that the Jews were always a troublemaking nation because they had to revolt under the Greeks. The, the Romans knew that. The eastern side of the Roman Empire was was porous, and they, they had to secure the Mediterranean. If they didn't secure that eastern section, you'd have had all the people from Parthia and Persia and everybody else coming out and getting into the Mediterranean Sea and go, you know becoming pirates. So they had to protect that eastern end of the Mediterranean. So from their point of view, They didn't have time to get into all the theological niceties. They were just there to maintain order and kick butt if there was a problem. And they did. They killed people. So here's the high priest saying, "Man, all we need now is another disturbance. So that's why the high priest says, it's better that one man die than the whole nation. Remember that? in John, when he's upset about that. That's a political deal. It's all political. But you see, John the Apostle, with his wonderful spiritual insight, sees that even behind that political intrigue was a greater truth. Because in saying what the high priest had said, it's better for one man to die than all, he was articulating a correct theology. And that's the irony. See, when you see these things, that's why it's so neat to study history. Because you see the hand of God, like we saw tonight, with the Roman army engineers. You see the hand of God with all the forces that look chaotic. And you begin to say, holy miracle! how does he do this? He pulls this off perfectly. And I've always gained, that's to me one, one of the tools God uses to teach me, is that I can move from there back to my personal life much better than I can sit and talk about my personal life. If I get the environment set, then God can do that, then he can take care of this. So you go from the greater to the lesser. And that's why history ought to be exciting for any believer. Because you're seeing his story unfold. The the Bible gives you the key to it. So I think, Debbie, um, that the tension was always there. Never went away. It was just that the average believer could waltz into the temple, say prayers, and uh, give alms, and, hey, no problem. But then when Peter and John start witnessing, they start opening their mouth, That became a problem. But it was always, yes, Laura. Was Luke himself a diaspora Yeah, the question is, was Luke himself a diaspora Jew? I haven't really studied that enough to give you a definitive answer from my, just from my reading. I mean, I don't know because I've heard both sides that he was a diaspora Jew and that he was uh, actually non Jew, Gentile. Well, Yes, and that's another, how God, in his marvelous, sovereign control, picked the author of Acts, who would be sensitive to spotting that event. Luke did research. We know he did research. He interviewed people. Before he wrote Acts, as the second volume of his work, Luke being volume one and Acts being volume two, it says he did research. And scholars believe that he went back to a lot of the people, because he's the one that, you know, he's the one that tells all about how the women felt when they were pregnant. And why did he do that? Well, God picked. What was his, What was his interest? He's a doctor. And so, when this virgin birth thing came up, he said, "Whoa, hey, wait a minute here. I've got to check this one out." So, who would God have? Write the, the medical doctor. Go check them out. The ladies are still alive. Ask them. And so, that's the same thing, Laura. I think that Luke, probably because he, at least, if he, even if he wasn't a diaspora Jew, he certainly was well-traveled, and he was knowledgeable in, in the Greek civilization. So, he would have picked on that immediately, because he's coming years later. Luke isn't there in Acts 2, 3, 4, and 5. He's been one to the Lord later. And so, he's going back in time, probably talking to Paul probably got the lead from Paul. said, Paul, where did this idea come from? I mean, how did you guys rethink the whole Old Testament like this? And I would imagine Paul said, well, I'll tell you what. Where it first hit me was when I was standing there watching this guy get stoned. And I realized what he said. Maybe. So, it's all kinds of interactions of people. This guy talked to this guy and talked to this guy, but behind it, a hand of God. Neat story. Well, next week we'll work on um, the rest of Stephen's speech.